morning. Late last year in San Antonio, there was a court case that involved a man who was caught driving drunk. Now, in San Antonio, typically the sentencing for a DUI case like that is three years of prison time. But in this particular case, the public was generally kind of surprised to see that the judge had issued a much lighter sentence than that, only four years of probation. And it was kind of confusing. But several months later, it was discovered that the judge had taken a bribe from the defendant's attorney in exchange for a lighter sentence. He was found to be a corrupt judge. He was a judge who gave an unjust ruling for his own personal benefit. In a sense, I guess you could say that he was a forgiving judge because even though he delivered punishment for the crime, it was a much lighter punishment than what the law required. So in a sense, he withheld punishment from someone who clearly deserved it which is a very gracious and forgiving thing to do, right? But even though he was a, a forgiving judge, that does not mean that he was a good judge. Because a good judge always punishes wrongdoing. That's what separates a good judge from a corrupt one. Let's keep those thoughts in the back of our mind because this morning we're going to focus our attention on the gospel, on the, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I know that sometimes in the church we become a little bit desensitized to the gospel. Maybe it's just because we hear that word so often. But we have a tendency to take the story of salvation and condense it down into three or four very simple points for easier digestion. It's kind of like this tract that I brought from home. Maybe some of you have something like this too. I remember it from my college years. This is something to be used as a tool for sharing the gospel out on the street or on campus. It's a summary of the gospel in four simple points, one on each page. So the first page says, God loves me. And the second page says, I am a sinner. The third page says, Jesus died for my sin. And page four says, I should accept him into my life. So there it is. It's the gospel in four simple points. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're guaranteed to have heard that simple message of salvation at least once in your life. Many of us have heard it more times than that in lots of different ways. In fact, in the church, sometimes we hear those foundational principles of the gospel so frequently that we become kind of desensitized to it. Maybe even this morning, you came to church expecting to hear some sort of a profound insight into the Christian life, and then you heard me say just a few minutes ago that we're talking about the gospel, and deep inside, maybe you thought to yourself, the gospel, yeah, I kind of already know the gospel. I already know the story of salvation. I know I've had that thought before, but when I say that I know the gospel, what I'm really saying is I know it to a certain degree. It's a little bit like if you were to ask an astronomer if she knows space, and she'd look at you and say, well, yeah, I know space, I'm an astronomer. But she might also say, well, I know enough about space to know that I don't really know all that much about space. And she might go on to tell you about how she first became aware of space when she was a five-year-old girl. And she looked up at the nighttime sky and she saw this black expanse and all of these little white dots sprinkled all over the place. And someone told her that those are called stars. And she also saw this round, bright thing and someone told her that's called the moon. And on that day, she knew space at the most basic and fundamental level. 
but she might go on to tell you about how several years later she got her first junior telescope when she was in grade school and it gave her the ability to actually look into space for the first time and see that it actually has depth and she's able to see planets and comets and on that day she knew space to a greater degree. She could even go on to tell you about her college years, how one day she climbed to the highest point in this observatory and she looked through the finest telescope with state-of-the-art optics and computer technology and what she saw blew her mind because she was able to see to the farthest reaches of the galaxy and even see other galaxies. And the funny thing is that that high-powered telescope gave her the ability to look at even some of the most basic objects that she knew as a five-year-old, like the moon. What well, used to look like this round, bright thing, now she can see the very cracks and crevices in the surface of the moon and all of the intricate topography and the mountains and the valleys and even the texture of the soil on the surface of the moon. And on that day, she knew space to a far greater degree. Because every time she got an equipment upgrade, it gave her the ability to see into space deeper and deeper. And with every new revelation, she realized how far away she was from actually understanding the whole of the universe. It's a lot like that with the gospel. At some point in life, for the very first time, you understand that very simple message of salvation. Maybe it's the same simple four points that I read from that tract a few minutes ago. And you respond to it. And you become saved. But after that, what happens is you spend the rest of your life discovering what actually happened on that day. The amazing thing about the gospel is that it's incredibly simple, like five-year-old simple. But at the same time, the gospel is deeply profound. And the more time we spend with God and the closer we get to him, he gives us faith to be able to see what he's done more clearly. So we can look deeper into the story of salvation it's like a telescope upgrade. God has done very specific things in the salvation of a believer. These are specific actions that God takes whether we know about them or not. And the more we know about those very specific things he does, the more reason we have to worship him. We can even start to look back at some of those same foundational principles we understand about salvation the same principles we understood at day one, but over time, as we draw closer to God, we begin to see the profound implications of those simple principles. We can even start to meditate on some of those, those, those ancient truths that we understand at a deeper level now. And the more that we discover about our own salvation, the closer we get to God, the more we understand him better. I believe the church could spend an entire lifetime studying nothing but the gospel and all of its unique facets. Today we're going to study one particular facet of the gospel, one unique aspect of the story of salvation. It's called justification. Here's what it means. Justification is a legal declaration by God that we are right in regard to his law and that he will treat us as right with God. We'll talk more about that definition in just a little bit, so don't worry if it doesn't completely click yet. This is a concept that's interwoven all throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. This word justification pops up a lot. And like all the unique facets of the gospel, it's important for us to understand this concept of justification because it allows us to 
uh, unpack and, and understand so many key sections of Scripture that we come across in our daily reading. So maybe today will be one of those days when God gives us a telescope upgrade to be able to see at least this one unique aspect of salvation to a greater degree, understand it at a deeper level, and know God better and be able to worship Him more completely. In the Bible, God often describes Himself as a judge over His creation. You remember the judge back in San Antonio? You remember how he was found to be a corrupt judge? In direct contrast to that, the Bible describes God as being a good judge. The judge in San Antonio was actually a gracious forgiver, but in his moral corruption, he failed to deliver just punishment for the crime that was committed. In contrast to that, I want to show you a scripture where God describes his own nature as a good judge. And he does it in a conversation he had with Moses on Mount Sinai. It's in the book of Exodus chapter 34. So if you have a Bible within your reach, please grab it. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. We'll show it on the screen as well. Here's Exodus chapter 4, the verses, sorry, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. And again, this is God describing his own nature as a good judge. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This passage that we just read, it's it's split up into two different parts, and they're separated with the word but. In some of your translations, it might be the word yet. If you're into writing stuff in your Bible, you might even want to draw a dividing line there because there's the first half and the second half. And in the first half of the passage, God is describing his nature as a forgiver. Look at some of the language you see in there. He describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger. talks about unconditional love and faithfulness. He even describes his forgiveness using three separate words, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's like three ways of saying essentially the same thing. He's, he's clearly describing himself in the first part of the passage as a forgiver. But look at the second half of the scripture. It's fascinating. It's a complete flip. The second half describes his nature as a diligent punisher. Look at the language he uses. He says, he will by no means clear the guilty. Look at the word iniquity. In the first half, he describes iniquity, showing that he forgives iniquity. In the second half, he punishes iniquity. Not just for the one who committed it, but he's such a thorough punisher that he carries it out three and four generations after the original sin was committed. It's very clear that in that second half of the passage, God is describing his nature as a punisher. And there's a problem here. If you read the scripture for what it really says, what you see is this apparent contradiction. In the first half, God describes himself as a forgiver. He forgives which is kind of another way of saying he clears the guilty. In the second half, it says he will not clear the guilty. So it brings up this important question. How can God 
show forgiveness by withholding punishment from the guilty, but simultaneously make sure the guilty never go unpunished. You see how that's a problem? How there's a conflict there? As strange as it seems, this passage is describing God as a good judge. The judge in San Antonio was a gracious forgiver, but he failed to be a just punisher. This passage says that God does both. He's both a gracious forgiver and he is a just punisher. But how can he do both at the same time for the same person? It's a problem. And this is the key question that we're going to focus on today. So I put it on the screen here. This is a fundamental question of the Christian faith. How can God punish the guilty for sin and at the very same time forgive the guilty of sin and still come out as a good and righteous judge? The Bible says he does both things, but how does he pull that off? Part of the answer to that question is the concept of justification. So to see how that works, we're going to take a look at this section from Romans chapter 3 that Paul read at the beginning. So this is Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. We're going to read it just piece by piece now, and then we'll go back in and look at each section. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's go back to the beginning and look at this bit by bit. Here's generally what this is saying. There was a time in history before Jesus when there was a certain way to be in right standing with God. God set up a law with his people through Moses. And if you wanted to be in right standing with God, you had to follow that law perfectly. And if you did, you would be considered legally right with God. Legally because it's in regard to his law. The trouble is, no one could do it. No one was capable of following that law to perfection. So instead, God set up a system of animal sacrifice so that the people could be considered legally right with God without actually following his law. It was a system of repeated animal sacrifice, day after day after day. And through those animal sacrifices, God showed forbearance to pass over the former sins, the former sins being the sins committed before Christ. That's the the language here in chapter 3. He showed forbearance to pass over the former sins. Another way to say that is he showed tremendous patience to overlook the failure of his people to follow his law. And then one day Jesus came to the earth, and he lived, and he was crucified, and he was resurrected, and everything changed. God decided that he would no longer overlook the failure of his people to follow his law, but instead he decided that he would execute punishment for sin, diligently and persistently. He did this to show his righteousness at the present time. That's the next bit in Romans chapter 3. He decided to to, to execute punishment against sin to show his righteousness at the present time being the time after Christ. 
Because after all, that's what a righteous judge does. He doesn't overlook wrongdoing, but he addresses it and he delivers punishment for wrongdoing. He has to if he's going to be a righteous judge. Another way to say that is he must be just. God must execute punishment for sin because he must be just. Let's pause and take a step back for a second. This scripture that we're reading right now, just imagine that it stopped right there. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. Think for a second what that would be like. Can you see how that might be very bad news for people like you and I? It would be terrifying because we would still be under this law that we cannot possibly follow. The Bible is very clear that no one is free of sin. No one is righteous. No one is capable of following his law to perfection. Now, if God is just, like if God is truly just, he has to punish each and every one of us for our failure to follow his law. He has to. No exceptions. Remember what that scripture said in Exodus. He will by no means clear the guilty. Look, the just punishment for our law-breaking sin against God is permanent excommunication from him. It's because even our mildest sin is committed against a God who is infinitely perfect, infinitely pure. So even the tiniest infraction against him is infinitely offensive to him and it demands our destruction. That is the only possible outcome if God is just. It is terrifying. Thank God the verse doesn't end there. These next few words in Romans chapter 3, verse 26 are remarkable. Look at what this says. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are two different roles that are being identified here. There's the role of just and justifier. They're distinct from one another. Think of the way it works in a court of law. There's the judge who always plays the role of being the one who is just. He delivers the appropriate punishment for the crime. We've talked about that a lot this morning. But then there's the role of the justifier, which is always played by the convicted criminal himself, because he's the one who has to pay to make it right. Whatever crime was committed, the criminal is the one who has to make it right by paying a fine or by doing prison time or doing community service. In the most severe cases, the criminal has to make it right by being executed. In the story of salvation, God is the just judge. You and I are the convicted, guilty criminal who must pay to make it right. But look at what verse 26 says. It says that God is not only just, he is also the justifier. He does both roles. So not only does he deliver the appropriate punishment for the crime, but he also is the one who makes it right by receiving his own punishment so that we don't have to. He does both. That is incredible. Just think about that. Meditate on that today and as you drive to work. The more you think about that, the more incredible it becomes. He does both roles so that we don't have to. 
Oh, that is such good news. He does it by means of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to our definition of the word justification. It's a legal declaration by God that we are right in regard to his law and that we will be treated as right with God. The important thing about justification is that it has nothing to do with the way we actually are. Our sinful motivations and the corrupt human condition of our hearts, it has nothing to do with that stuff. In fact, despite the way we actually are, justification is when we call on God in faith and he declares us to be righteous, even though we actually aren't. He can do that because when he justifies us, he's not actually looking at us. Instead, he looks at Christ. And here's what he does. He takes the righteousness of Christ and he applies it to us. And then he thinks of us as having the righteousness of Christ. He even treats us as having the righteousness of Christ. You realize what that means? That means no condemnation. It means assurance of salvation. It means assurance that you'll be with him in eternity because your justification, your legal standing to God has nothing to do with your progress toward inward righteousness or it doesn't even have anything to do with your progress toward following his law better and better. Instead, your legal standing before God has to do with him declaring you righteous because he wants to, because you had faith enough to ask for it. That's it. This is a foundational principle of the Christian faith. This is something that sets the Christian faith apart from other faith systems in the world. And it's so important for us to remember this distinction because some people out there will tell you that you can only be right with God once you've become inwardly righteous through following his law. You can only be right with him once you've worked really hard to be the best possible person you can be. And you can only be right with him once you've achieved some state of having pure motives and godly behaviors. Then you can be right with God. Have you heard people talk like that before? That is not what the Bible says. Those people will never know if they're in right standing with God. I've sat and talked with them before, and it's dismal. There's this constant sense of insecurity because they never know how good they have to be to be okay with God. They don't know how good they have to be to be accepted by him into eternity. And so all they can do is just wait until that day comes and hope for the best. But the Bible says that you meet his requirement when you call on Jesus in faith. Because at that moment, he declares you to be righteous despite the unrighteous condition of your heart. And at that moment, you are justified. And what comes with that is this tremendous sense of peace because you know right where you stand with God. There is no ambiguity with him. You know where you stand relative to him. And you know where you're headed into eternity. Now, I know that some will want to talk about how a profession of faith in Christ has to be followed by a changed life. And about how followers of Christ need to bear fruit, showing evidence of our salvation. And that's so true. That's a topic that's actually covered by another unique facet of the gospel called sanctification. It's a topic we don't quite have time to, to cover today. 
but it kind of goes without saying that a person who's been transformed by the gospel is going to start to live in a way where they're trying to please God. But understand this, that your, your legal standing before God does not depend on your progress toward inward righteousness. It doesn't depend on the fact that you're getting better and better at following him. Instead, your legal standing with God only depends on his declaration of righteousness over you. That's it. That's justification. So we've started to answer this question about how God can be both a punisher of sin and a forgiver of sin at the same time. It's because Romans chapter 3 describes God as not only the just punisher, but he is also our forgiver by being the justifier. He does both roles. He declares us to be righteous, and so we are in his eyes. But that kind of brings up another problem. It's another big question. How can God just up and declare a person to be righteous when they're clearly not? Shouldn't he have to show some sort of proof, some sort of evidence for his claim? Well, I was thinking about that a little bit. And uh, so I brought something from home that I wanted to show you. This is something I bought from the store yesterday. It's a diamond. Check this out. (laughs) I'll, I'll get a little closer so you can see this. I don't know if you can see this from where you're sitting, but the truth is it's not a real diamond. It's actually not even cubic zirconium. It's it's made of candy and plastic, okay? But here's what I'm thinking. If I just declare this to be a diamond maybe somebody would believe me and be willing to pay a lot of money for this. Look at it, it's huge. I could get like $100,000 for this and pay off my mortgage. (laughs) If I took this to the pawn shop later today, and if I set it down on the counter and said to the guy behind the counter, that right there is a diamond, what do you think he would say to me? (laughs) Like after he stopped laughing, what do you think he would say to me? (laughs) He'd say, that looks nothing like a diamond. How do I know that what you're telling me is true? You got any certification? And that's where the plan sort of falls apart because I don't have any certification. It's a ring pop. I bought it from Walmart yesterday. (laughs) But assuming that plan doesn't work out very well, I also brought this to show you today. This is a diamond for real. It's so real I had to request permission to bring it here today from the person who owns it. (laughs) If you happen to see her later today just so that you know I got, I got permission. Now, if I took this to the pawn shop, I should, I should probably be very clear about that, too. I will not take this to the pawn shop today. But, <laughs> but if I did, and if I set it down on the counter and, and said to the guy be, behind the counter, that right there is a diamond, he'd probably pick it up, and he'd take a good close look at it and let the light refract off of it in all the different ways, and he'd say, all right, how do I know that what you're telling me is true? How do I know that that's really a diamond? And that's when I would pause for effect and put it back in the box there, and I would pull out this. Boom, certification. (laughs) This is an official document from the European Gemological Laboratory. I explained to the last service, I usually pronounce that word laboratory, but I think we can all agree that uh, this document says laboratory, right? (laughs) It's got a, a little diagram that shows all the unique imperfections of this diamond. It, it talks about its cut and its clarity and its carat weight. It even has an estimated replacement value, which I won't let you see. Now, 
This document shows that this diamond is the real deal. This document is proof that this diamond is legit. So the point is this. If you're going to make a bold declaration about something, you had better come with certification to prove your claim. In justification, when God declares you to be righteous, he provides certification to prove his claim. So check out 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Brandon read this at the top of the service. Look at what this says. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's kind of a visual depiction of what this verse says. When we accept Jesus into our lives, he takes our sin, our past and our present, and even our future sin, and he places it on Christ. That's another unique facet of the gospel called atonement. Another topic we don't quite have time to talk through completely today. At the same time, he takes the righteousness of Christ and he places it on us. That's a concept called justification. That's what we've been talking about all day. That's what this verse says. Jesus was made to become sin so that we might become righteous. It's a direct swap. In justification, when God declares you to be righteous, there's the certification, the righteousness of Christ. If anybody ever doubts your righteousness, if anybody ever needs to see proof of your righteousness, you do not point here. You point to Christ because his has now become yours. And as far as God is concerned, the righteousness of Christ is now your righteousness, and so he will treat you that way. I want to close with an illustration that I've kind of adapted from a preacher in Virginia. His name is Paul Washer. So I'd like you to imagine a man who's driving home from work one day after a long day, and he approaches his neighborhood, and all of a sudden he can see this army of police cars and ambulances and fire trucks all huddled around his driveway. So he hops out of his car and rushes up to the front door, and he finds that it's a crime scene. And he's approached by the police chief who explains to him that 20 minutes ago, an armed man broke into the house and shot his wife and two kids with no clear motive. The killer was apprehended, and he's now in custody. And the man's wife and two children were pronounced dead on the scene. In a story like this, it would be typical for you as the listener to want to identify with the man who just lost his wife and children. You can imagine his overwhelming sense of grief and his rage over what happened. But in this story, I'd like you to identify with the killer. Now, I know that that's uncomfortable, but that's the way this story goes. So you have no idea, as you think over the past eight hours, you have no idea what came over you or what caused you to commit this crime, but you did it, and you know that you did it. And so you find yourself sitting in a cold prison cell facing a certain death sentence. And months go by, and you hear all these bits and pieces from the media about this crime that you committed. They analyze it on the evening news, and there's a Dateline special on Friday night about it. And you start to hear all of the backstory behind this man whose family you stole. And a deep sense of regret starts to set in. 
then the day of the trial comes, and you're marched into the courtroom in handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit, and you're planted in a chair right next to your court-appointed attorney, and you can't even bring yourself to look at the other side of the room because you're terrified of locking eyes with this man whose life you ruined. And just then, everybody rises as the judge enters the courtroom. And that's when you realize that this is not some generic judge. The judge is the very husband of the wife you murdered, the very father of the children you murdered. And there he stands, commanding the courtroom in his stately gown and his gavel, and you feel utter hopelessness. You have committed a crime, an unthinkable crime, against the very man who will deliver your sentence. So the trial starts, but it doesn't take very long. The evidence for the prosecution abounds. Their case is airtight. The defending, your, your attorney, the defendant's attorney just never had a chance. Everybody in the courtroom knows you committed this crime. The jury goes out to deliberate, but they're back in no time. And when you're asked to give your plea, you stand up and you state very simply, I did it. I committed this crime, and everybody here knows it. Now the judge has no family to go home to. I am broken with regret over the things I have done. And I can only ask for mercy from the judge. And all you can hear after that are disgusted sighs from the people in the crowd and the gallery and the people in the jury. How could you make such an audacious claim? It's disgusting. And the spokesman for the jury stands up and reads the verdict. We find the defendant guilty of three counts of murder. And the crowd applauds at the reading of the just verdict. And you feel more hopeless than ever. And then the judge begins to speak. He says, based on the testimony given here today, and based on the evidence presented against the defendant, I am obligated to deliver a just ruling. And then he looks directly at you. The fitting punishment for the crime you have committed is death. However, I am a judge who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Therefore, I declare you to be innocent of all charges. And the prosecuting attorney interrupts and says, Objection, Your Honor. This was a fair trial where this criminal was tried among a jury of his peers and found to be guilty of a heinous crime. Your ruling is unjust. It is a mockery of this entire courtroom. Your ruling is a perversion of justice, and I will not stand for it. And the judge sits back and just stares at the fuming prosecuting attorney, and he says very calmly, I'm not finished yet. He sets down his gavel, and he stands up from his highly exalted judge's seat, and he removes his stately gown, showing his street clothes underneath. And the judge steps down from the bench, and he approaches the defense, 
and he commands the officer to remove the handcuffs from your wrists. And then he asks you to take off your orange jumpsuit. The judge puts on your orange jumpsuit and orders the officer to fasten the handcuffs around his own wrists. And then he speaks to you, but loud enough that everyone else can hear. Though you are guilty, I declare you to be innocent. Your death sentence is now applied to me. My innocence is applied to you. From this moment forward, this court will treat you as an innocent man, as a free man. Please go take your seat among all the free people in the gallery. And at that moment, the righteous judge is escorted out of the courtroom in handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit to swallow up his own just death sentence. He is both just and he is the justifier. He is such a good judge. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. All we can say is thank you for being both just and the justifier. We have hope because of you. 